Hello and welcome to You Just Got Homeschooled. I'm RJ and I've been trying to get more of these out and yet I feel like life is getting hoodwinked, um, at least my life is. And it sounds weird, but because of the pandemic that has decided to destroy our world, um, it's actually created a few challenges. One of them is the fact that um, the time I would normally use to record podcasts has been stripped from me because now my family isn't going anywhere and I'm not going anywhere. And so historically, I have time, little pieces of time where, you know, the kids are going to dance lessons or something like that. And I got time to record. And with everything being shut down, that means that I don't have that time anymore. And then in addition to that, um, the times when I might have um, it's tax season. My wife is a tax preparer. So we're at the end of tax season or we were. And then coronavirus decided to destroy that as well. And then on top of that, all my neighbors are home. And so there's a lot more yard work being done than normal. And so every time I think, oh, I might have, you know, half an hour to record one of these with some silence, there is a lawnmower, weed whacker, chainsaw, something going on in my neighborhood that is really loud and I can hear inside my house. So currently I'm sitting inside our car so I can record this podcast while the babysitter is watching the kids and my wife is working. So I've had this article now for about a week um, and I wanted to talk about it because it was, it, uh, was published by the Washington Post The title of the article is Perspective, Homeschooling During the Coronavirus Will Set Back a Generation of Children, and it's by Kevin Huffman. So I would strongly recommend that if you have the time and the interest to go read the article yourself, I'm going to pull some stuff out of it and comment on it because the whole article kind of strikes me as a little bit convoluted, to be honest. It's self-contradictory in a few places, at least in my Um, perception. And I want to share with you what the world thinks about homeschool and what the world thinks about education as a whole. And I want to point out a few things. So I'm going to read sections of this and and then um, talk about, uh, kind of reflect on it and where my mind goes when I hear these things. So I marked up the first paragraph um, pretty heavily. So I'm going to read the whole paragraph and then I'm going to go back and, and talk about it a little bit. And then we get a little bit thinner as we go down. So let's start. Again, the title is Perspective. Homeschooling during the coronavirus will set us set back a generation of children. It was published by the Washington Post, and the author is Kevin Huffman. Here we go. Quote, as the coronavirus pandemic closes schools, in some cases until September, American children this month met their new English, math, science, and homeroom teachers. I just want you to note on options. There's no history in there. Why is there no history in there? Isn't that, shouldn't that be one of the core subjects? And more importantly, shouldn't that be one of like the main core subjects since that's where identity is found? Back to the passage. Their iPads and their parents, right? Since science and homeroom teachers, their iPads and their parents. Classes are going online, if they exist at all. The United States is embarking on a massive, months-long virtual pedagogy experiment, and it is not likely to end well. Years of research show that online schooling is ineffective and that students suffer significant learning losses when they have a long break from school. Now they're getting both in a hastily arranged mess. 
And the kids who suffer most from the summer slide are the low-income students, the ones already struggling to keep up. So that's the end of the paragraph, end quote. Um, other than my first little bit there about history and why is that not part of the, the core curriculum, or at least the core curriculum he's answer, or talking about, um, that just blows my mind because identity is more important. Like you want to understand, like I, at least in my perspective, if we want to understand why the United States is so divided politically, I would trace it back at least partially to this, that we don't share an identity anymore. Instead, we've become our, the, the central identity um, of an American is no longer a shared heritage, good and bad, but rather individual heritages um, based typically on whatever your group is, whether that be your ethnicity or your gender or um, your how you were discriminated against as a, as a group. The group identity has surpassed and replaced, um, or I should say, smaller group identities has surpassed and replaced the larger American identity, which I think is what allowed so much integration in the past. I mean, if you think about the, the turn of the ninth, from the 19th to the 20th century, so the early 1900s, you saw a huge influx of immigrants from traditionally non-standard places from American immigration. So a lot of Eastern Europeans, a lot of Southern Europeans, and then a lot of Asians as well. And what you saw is relatively quick integration of those people, even though they spoke vastly different languages, um, had vastly different cultural uh, norms, but they were able to integrate quickly and efficiently, partly because they bought into an American identity. They saw themselves as Americans. In fact, you see this a lot in naming. Um, you had a lot of names where people would name their children, you know, historically based on the names of their their heritage. But then when they moved here, you see names shift relatively quickly to, instead of being, you know, Giuseppe, um, you might have more common, quote unquote, American names, which in, in all honesty are typically white Anglo-Saxon names um, or Americanized versions of those names. And, and that's part of cultural identifying. We culturally identify um, as American rather than being Greek or Italian. Um, and they say, I'm an Italian American rather than I'm an Italian. And so I think that's important. So we need to pay attention to history. And the fact that it's not listed here is a, a signal, a sign that it's not valued the same way that other things are. In fact, in, in California, at least it's the only um, core subject, quote unquote core subject. It's mandated to be taught, but it's the only core subject that's not tested on. Um, at some point, English and math are tested every year and science is tested every few years, but history is never tested anymore. So the next part of that sentence, um, their, their new homeroom teachers are, has become their iPads and their parents. I want you to note that they put the technology first and it's an assumption. And I think it's, it's, uh, not a good one that, or at least it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that we see kids coming out of the system and their teacher becomes technology instead of their parents. Because in all reality, um, what makes an, a teacher what makes a teacher effective in the classroom is not the technology that they use, it's the relationship they cultivate. And the same thing is true in the home. It is not the technology you use, it's the relationship that is cultivated. And you can evidence this by the fact that good teachers have existed for all of time. 
and bad teachers have existed for all of time. And it doesn't matter the level of technology. My guess is that many of you did almost all of your work growing up on pen and paper, right? Or pencil and paper, right? I know I had teachers that required pencils and not pens. Um, And it was a relationship, not the technology. And adding technology does not add education. And so, but they make the assumption that the iPads or other technology is going to fill in the gap. Um, a lot of the classes in public schools are going online or switching to packets, basically, like busy work. And I think that both of those have their benefits and both of those have their detriments. But the fact that he's making the assumption that basically by moving, that he's, he's correlating moving traditional school online or into the home is the same as keeping traditional school. I think that's a false premise. I think in all reality, homeschooling is a completely different approach, or it ought to be visualized as a completely different approach to education than traditional schooling. It can at times look like traditional schooling, but I don't think it's the same. Um, I'm going to refer back to the passage that way you know where I'm coming from. It says, years of research show that online school is ineffective. Well, your title talks about homeschooling, not online school, right? And so it's not fair to correlate the two or to you know, put an equal sign between the two. Homeschooling is not online schooling. And I would agree that online education in many cases is ineffectual. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but it's not fair to make the, the correlation that online school or packets sent home is homeschooling. And, and students suffered significant learning losses. Well, the question becomes then, what is the significant learning loss? And was it really learning if it's lost? Like, we all know that things fade as we don't use them. But, and what is the goal of that learning? Like, we have all these different parameters that have to be addressed here. And it's just a blanket statement of learning losses. And yes, oftentimes kids do lose the ability to, com- to, to do certain things, to perform in certain ways. But the question becomes, one, did they actually learn it? Or was it just learned for the test? And then two... Was it valuable enough to be kept? And then three, what was used to quote unquote teach that, that it can be lost so easily. And I think that that goes into some of the stuff I've talked in previous podcasts about how repetition is important. If you read widely and you read extensively and you read regularly, you're less likely to lose reading ability. But if you stop reading Yes, you're going to lose some of what you had gained. The question becomes, why would you stop reading? Why would a kid stop reading? Unless they were reading because they were forced to. Right? Um, Same with math. Um, Math is one of those areas that traditionally in school, they try to plow you through as much as possible and you cover it very briefly and you test on it very quickly and then you don't revisit it again until the test, like the state tests, because they have to cover so much material. I have found that repetition is far more important than the, the massive material covered. You want quality rather than quantity. And so, yeah, you're going to have learning losses, but it's because your system is set up poorly and without concern for actual student learning and more concern for student performance on a test. Um, and he's making the assumption that now we're getting both, right? It's, it's uh, long periods of time off and hastily prepared online learning, which I don't think is fair because homeschooling is not um, online learning. And in this case, it may look like that, but this is where parents have the opportunity. You have the opportunity if you are 
are coming to this new to really invest in your kid and see how much can be done in so little time if you're actually able to use that relationship that you have and to use the tools you have at your disposal, whether they're they're basic or complicated, whether they're online or offline, to really educate your kid and and to work with them rather than to work with a class of 30. And then they tag on this little little piece in here, which I think we need to keep in the back of our mind as we go through the rest of this. The last sentence of that paragraph says, and kids who suffer most from the summer slide are the low income students, the ones already struggling to keep up. Two reflections here. Why, if your system is so wonderful and the education is so important and the work you're doing so effective, why are they still struggling to keep up? I think that's a a valid question. If this is the way it ought to be and if this is the best place for students, why are they still struggling to keep up? Now, they'll make an argument, and I think there's some validity to it, that low-income students are living in an environment that doesn't, isn't conducive to them learning in school, right? So um, they might have uh, limited or lack of access to food at home, or they're not in a great living situation. They're living with extended family members, or the dad's not at home, or both parents work, or, you know, there's a lots of different parameters that could to qualify for that, and, and that's true, Right? There is some validity to that. But I think it's missing that there is a core component um, to humanity that needs to be addressed here. That even if situations are dire at home, kids can still learn. In fact, they are learning. We are learning machines. Humans are learning machines. They may not be learning academic stuff, but they are learning real things. Every single moment of every single waking hour, right? And we can see this because we always have those exceptions to the rule, right? We have those people who, you know, their, their life story is one tragedy after another, and yet they rise right? You have George Washington Carver, who was born a slave, right? And became a professor. You have all these people who can say, no, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't where I was born. It wasn't how I was born. It wasn't the life that I live. It was my choices that got me out. Now, do we need to deal with those issues? These, you know, that, that cause low-income students to backslide? Yes, but I think that they're targeting the wrong thing. They think that if they, they fix material issues, they're going to get academic success. And I don't think the issues are primarily material. They're primarily um, cultural in a sense. They need to be dealt with on a different level. They need to be dealt with in larger social um, ways that address not so much the economics of a particular family or particular individual, but instead a a larger structure. But this is going to color the rest of this article and you're going to see it again. But I want you to keep in mind those two things. One, you can't really deal with these issues as simply a minor matter of money. It's not a money issue. Um, you can look at the number of people who go from nothing to having tons of money, right? They win the lottery, they become a sports star, and what happens to them? Money does not solve the problem. The problems are not prim- primarily um, physical. They're actually more cultural or um, spiritual, for lack of a better word. And then two, if your system's so great, why are those kids still struggling? 
right? They come to school and they get breakfast for free. They come to school and they get lunch for free. They get an education, right? You have teachers that have been credentialed out the yin-yang. If the solution is something that is monetary or physical, why are they still struggling? Um, he then he goes on to talk about um, how districts and teachers are trying to mobilize to get their kids what they need, which I think is is fair. I think that that's what's happening in many cases. I know that in California, the Teachers Association, um, it's their initial response was not a positive one. They were like, we're not doing anything. Don't ask us to do anything unless you're going to pay us more. Um, I have reached out to a few people to hopefully try to get some more information on that, but haven't heard back yet. He also makes a comment in the second sentence of the second paragraph. He says, um, many are showing entrepreneurial spirit and creativity and the ad hoc homeschool universe is awash with ideas and resources. First off, I guess in some ways homeschooling is ad hoc, but that's because education is ad hoc. He makes it sound like what's going on in a classroom is not ad hoc. My first year teaching, I was happy if I was five minutes ahead of my students. Literally. The entire first year almost. Because it was so hard to, to keep up. And I only I had three classes. I was three different subjects I was teaching um, in six periods. Five periods, technically. So there was lots of stuff to do. And I was borrowing a lot from two other teachers. Um, who were teaching the same subject as I, and I was, I was taking their lesson plans, and, and, but I was still happy because I was five minutes ahead. So first off, it's not fair to say the homeschool universe is ad hoc when really education is ad hoc because you're dealing with individual individuals as well as individual classrooms in a classroom setting, um, and each class has a different personality as a whole. And there's all sorts of dynamics. They can throw it off, they can change, and you learn things minute by minute if, you know, as you're teaching. Um, and then, yes, of course, homeschool is ad hoc because I'm trying to teach a, a student who, depending on the day, their mood, their their abilities, I'm going to have to pick and choose what works best. And then there's the, the teacher, right, the, the parent who's doing this. And that's another thing to keep in, uh, keep in mind, that it's not really ad hoc. It's just how education is. And I think it's it's unfair to to label it in such a way to say, well, they're not really they're not professionals. Well, their success rate is better than yours by the numbers. I have to go find those statistics, but I know they're out there. I think I covered them in an early episode. Um, their, their numbers are better than yours. So their ad hoc way of doing it works. Um, because of who I am and because I'm a history nerd, I want to draw a quick analogy here. America as a nation in its conflicts has always been good at ad hoc. Um, if you think about what you remember from your history of the Revolutionary War, the British were used to standing in lines. The Americans were used to fighting Native Americans. And so what you saw was, over the course of several years, the American colonies defeat the second most powerful land, well, maybe not second most powerful, the 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 single most powerful military but probably the third or fourth ranked land military on the planet by using ad hoc weapons and tactics. Um, and yet they were effective, not because um, they had the best training, but because they had a, a really flexible structure with which to work. 
Um, the next sentence after that is district leaders are working long hours trying their best to serve kids. And I honestly believe that's true. But I also want to make a, you know, call attention to the fact that district leaders um, are often elected officials who are elected there because they pander to the people, their constituency, right? I know in my local district, um, there is a favorite high school um, where they they kind of get premium dibs on things. Um, there are, they, for a long time, redrew district or like school boundaries to cut certain uh, apartment complexes, certain demographics into one school and not another. Um, they've since, since changed that, but but those are the kind of people that we're talking about. District leaders are oftentimes elected. And then you have superintendents and stuff like that. And my experience with administration, particularly in public schools, is oftentimes they are horrible teachers or mediocre teachers who get promoted. That is not to say that all admin is bad because they are not. But oftentimes they are not so great teachers who have their eye on admin from the beginning. And so they get promoted simply because good teachers love their kids, love staying in the classroom, and they want to stay there. And it takes a special teacher who's good to say, I want to go into admin and try to fix things. And oftentimes what they do is they get up there and they realize this sucks. Like there's no way to change the system. And so they often either come back down or they come beleaguered. And, and then there's decent teachers or good teachers who get up there and then they just lose touch with reality because they're in a whole different environment up there. So I don't think it's fair to give district leaders credit simply because they have a position. I think it, you need to look at the policies they make and the decisions they make in, the, in their time there. Um, he then goes on to talk about the, the failures of distance learning. Um, and mostly it's that it, it oftentimes students struggle with engagement and I understand that. We understand that all the time, right? Where you're like on your phone while watching TV or if you're on a video call or something like that, um, it's, it's harder to pay attention because the persons aren't, the people aren't there in the same way. And it's really hard also. I've, I've attended some or I've, I've taken some distance learning classes and my struggle with them is like a forum is not the same as a conversation. And I know that as a person, I'm not a, I don't enjoy writing. And so I will not write as much as I would talk simply because I don't, I can't engage as quickly and I can't communicate as, as fluidly, which is part of the reason why I do podcasts instead of writing articles. Um, so, and it's hard to maintain social engagement because if you remember back to school, there are oftentimes classes that you wanted to go to, but you were not super excited about school, but you oftentimes would like to go because of your friends. And so Humans are social creatures. We like being around people and with people. Oftentimes, even those of us that are pretty decently introverts, um, we still like engagement. We have friends. And um, social engagement is lower or just engagement is lower in on, you know, online platforms because students have more difficulty engaging with one another um, while in the material. I can't lean over to the person next to me, like, can you repeat that point to me? Or, you know, start a discussion in a classroom. It's not as easy to do that in a virtual platform, especially not verbally. Um, and so distance learning has those challenges. And so, yeah, student engagement is low. But it's because there's no social interaction. And it's not just social interaction with students. It's also social interaction with, this, with the teacher. Um, having 
taught in classrooms, um, I have found that, yes, I can assert my authority, but honestly, oftentimes the best tool I had in my toolbox was to develop individual relationships with students. Because if I developed individual relationships with students, I could use that relationship to, and just knowing them, I can then say, it looks like they're having a bad day. And, and use that as an opportunity, right? I, can, I, I know them, I know their behavior, and I have that, that relationship, and then I can use that relationship to increase their learning because I know them, right? So I would oftentimes give significant stretches of class time to work on material so I could go around and have conversations with individual students, ask them what they're doing, you know, how things are going, and that's um, where the education comes from or where the buy-in comes from is that individual relationship both with students among students and also teacher and students or parent and students. Those relationships become really, really important because they're really the key to learning. You don't really want to learn from someone oftentimes that you don't like or you feel is targeting you. But you will learn and you'll work harder for someone who you have a relationship with. And I'd be able to say, hey, you know, like I know you're having a rough day, but I really need you to pay attention. And, I, and because they know me and I know them, we can have that conversation. And I have story after story after story of where a classroom or a relationship that I developed intentionally cultivated with a student um, was useful to, to them and to me for their learning and for my learning, to be completely honest. So I think relationships are key. Um, there's a quote here that I want to read. Uh, and it's from a Stanford economist and educated, education researcher. And it says, It seems unlikely that parents and teachers Googling resources will do any better than um, the the institutions that have invested time and money into online education or online, like doing research on online coursework. And that may be true. It assumes, or, you know, it seems unlikely that parents and teachers Googling resources will do any better than these big institutions, but they're missing one key factor, relationship. That's the factor they're missing. Online researchers and, and, um, coursework and all that kind of stuff cannot ever replace relationship. I can go and learn of my own volition any, any number of things, right? But if it's something I don't want to learn, it's going to take a relationship to get me to learn it. I can do it either with a stick, right? In the sense of like, that's what happens in some classrooms. You have to learn this because there's a test and there's going to be consequences if you don't. Or there's a carrot, which is, you know what? I know this is good for you. You trust me. I'll work with you on it. Let's get through it together. That's a whole different ballgame. And so this economist, I think, is false or he has a false premise that somehow that simply because I can Google a resource, if you have a good teacher, they could Google nothing, and still do a better job than a classroom teacher who's got 30 kids and no relationship. Or an online teacher who's got 100 kids and no relationship. Right? This is exactly why college classrooms with 250 students in them and a TA who grades all the work, they're only going to learn if they want to learn. Right? Because there's no relationship. Meanwhile, if 
a professor, a teacher, a parent, a mentor takes an interest and involves the student and their emotional well-being and their spiritual well-being and their health and all those kind of things and engages them one-on-one, they will be able to get that student to do way more than that student would ever be able to do on, by themselves because it's a relationship. And so that's an unfair assumption by the Stanford economist because it is not fair to hold um, a, a, or to hold, it is not fair to say that simply because online education fails a lot of times for the reasons we just mentioned, that a parent is going to fail also when they have less resources or less research behind them. He then goes on to talk about the summer slide, which is, you know, which we know that like when kids, you know, go off for the summer, they come back and you have to like reteach them a bunch of stuff, which is true. But I want to kind of cast this in a different light. Um, I'm going to read the, the, the sentence to you. And then I'm going to reflect on it. Second, the summer slide has been studied for decades and researchers know that students fall backwards in learning from where they were at the end of the school year. Yes, we know that's true. Here's the question. Why? Why do they fall backwards in learning? If you're a kid, where do you go to learn? School. Where do you go to do everything else? Not school. Right? Where do you have fun? At home. When are you looking for, forward to? The weekends, right? Or the summer, right? Phineas and Ferb. There's 101 days of summer vacation and school comes along just to end it. Right? If you've ever watched that show, which I highly encourage you to go watch a couple episodes because one, it's just a great show. If you, it's a cartoon. I think it's Disney, um, but I'm not sure. It's a great show because these kids apparently go to school or went to school, right? They're on summer vacation and they do the most amazing creative things on summer vacation. And you can argue that they're doing a lot more learning on summer vacation. And I think that that's true. I think the problem here, the assumption is, is that learning happens in schools. And so when I'm not in school, I don't need to learn and I don't want to learn because learning is, a, is work that I have to do. Now, there's a lot of mantras in the education community about creating lifelong learners. How can you create lifelong learners when you correlate a specific place to learning? Instead, when they're homeschooled, life is learning. You can learn at any place at any time, right? Some of the greatest learning opportunities I have as a, as a homeschooled dad is driving in the car having conversations, picking out stuff that's on the side of the road, talking about things, having conversations with my wife and then realizing this is a perfect opportunity, right? So I think the, the, back, the summer slide or the, you know, the backwards trend of learning over break is simply because the structure is set up in such a way that I learn when I'm at school and I don't learn when I'm not. Outside of school is fun, inside of school is learning, which means learning is not fun. So what we need to do is really change that entire equation to say learning is what we do. And often we have fun doing it. School is a place you can go to learn, but is not actually the primary place we ought to learn. So he gives some statistics down at the bottom of the paragraph. In the summer slide, um, I'm going to read these couple sentences. Quote, 
In the summer following third grade, students lose nearly 20% of their school year gains in reading and 27% of their school year gains in math. By the summer after seventh grade, students lose an average of 36% of their school year gains in reading and a whopping 50% of their school year gains in math. How much you want to bet than on average, kids are not reading over the summer at roughly the same amount, right? That students are learning or reading over the summer roughly 20% less or more over the summer. So they're out of practice. But why are they not reading? Could it be because they don't like to read? Because reading is work? Because they were forced to start reading when they were five years old? And they don't want to read? Because reading is work. Same thing with math. They don't want to do math because math is work. They've associated, they've, they've come to associate a negative perspective to reading and math so they don't do reading or math when they don't have to. Why? Because they've been made work. Same thing in seventh grade, right? Seventh grade, you're in junior high, you're starting to get more um, social. You're biologically, you're, you're keying into your peer group more. And as your peer group likes school and school less because it's more and more work, you try less and less in academic subjects because you care more and more about what your peers think and feel. And they care less about school because they feel it as work. And then you have this downward spiral. And the education system is like, we don't know what's wrong with this. We just need to add more school. I'm like, no, you need to, <laughs> you need to quit making learning work. Long and the short of it. Now we get down to the next paragraph. I'm going to read the first sentence. The lowest income families will bear the brunt. The risk is that in in some school and sorry, the risk is that in some schools next year, you are going to have kids with parents who are able to provide high quality supplemental education at home, sitting next to a kid who hasn't received meaningful instruction since February. So remember back at the beginning when I was talking about um, how they're talking or they're addressing um, low-income students and how that could be a problem. This is a very revealing little quote to me because what it's showing me is that what they really cares care about is equity and not equality. They care less about making sure that every student gets a good education and more about every student reaches the same level of education. And I think that that's unfair. It's unfair for everyone because not, we're not all equal in our ability. It's just the truth. We're not all equal in our ability. We're all equal in our value because value is not attached to ability. Humans are valuable because they're humans, not because of what they can do, what they can produce right? They are valuable because they're humans. And so to have this equality or equity-based mindset saying, well, this isn't fair because some parents are going to care about their kids and educate them and other parents aren't. 
And so this is exactly the reasoning that I understood the California Teachers Association to use, which is it's not fair for those kids who don't have access to the teachers. So we're not going to teach anyone. Really? It's not fair in a classroom when you have an equity-based model because the kids who can are not allowed to. Because John over there hasn't figured it out yet. And so we have to wait for John. The problem is, is there's no kids at the top who are allowed to go, right? You're basically harnessing your best and your brightest to your lowest and your slowest and saying, drag them. The problem is you don't get your resources as you don't get your, your, uh, your workhorses either. And it's not that those people are unvaluable. It's that they need a different model. They need a different system. They need a system that works with them, not a, not a trying to fit them into a system. Because maybe the kids at the bottom who are struggling with reading or struggling with math, maybe they're great in another area, but they'll never get to see it because the system is rigged that you have to be good at reading, you have to be good at math, you have to be able to sit still, or you'll fail. And we're going to measure that with tests. So down after that sentence, um, we have this another little bit. It says, poor children don't have just, sorry, poor children don't just have less access to technology. They're also more likely to be home alone because their parents do not have the privilege to telework during the quarantine. Didn't you just tell me that online education isn't good enough? Like, didn't we just talk about that, like three paragraphs above, how it's actually not that great? But now you're telling me that the reason we have to, we have to really do something different here is because poor children don't have access to technology, so they can't learn and they won't learn, and we need to make sure everyone reaches the same level. Oh, and by the way, their parents probably aren't going to be home because they're working. Well, depending on how they're working, that may be true. But I can attest that I can get more done in 45 minutes with my kids or an hour than I could in five hours with a classroom. So the parents don't have 45 minutes or an hour at some point during the day. Kids don't need to learn first thing in the morning. They don't need to learn at lunch. They don't need to learn after lunch. They can learn at nine o'clock at night. They can learn at five o'clock in the morning. Whenever they're up and they're awake and you're awake at the same time, you can teach them. And they'll be able to learn. Now, there's going to be better times than others. You don't want to have them, like, falling asleep. But I think this underestimates, one, the resiliency of humans, particularly kids, but also that it takes so much less time. Okay, moving on. So here's a quote. The lady next door has seven kids and no computers. The family up the street has no internet. I'm afraid some families aren't going to do anything because some families simply can't do anything. Really? They can't? They won't? Or they've been taught not to? What has the mantra been from the institutional education? You're not qualified. You have nothing to offer your kids. You can't do this. They need something more than you. You're not smart enough. You don't know how it works. You don't have the right education. You don't have the right skills. 
So why would they try? They've been told they can't. They can't succeed. We're getting to the end. Yay. Okay. So he poses a solution here, and his solution is add more instructional days. Either tack it onto summer, move it into summer, or take a chunk of summer for the next few years. Or um, because we just never miss this, like we, we've never missed this many days as a culture before, as a society. And my response to that is, so the solution to kids falling behind is to keep them institutionalized. Right? Let's do functionally what they do in prison and let's just keep them there longer because that'll solve the problem. The problem is not the kids lose education over summer. The problem is not this extended summer online learning is an issue. The problem is your entire system is set up in such a way that makes learning a negative experience. And you have to fix that. And you cannot fix that with more days of school. It's got to come from somewhere else. Now, granted, they probably don't think this way. They probably don't understand this. They probably don't want to understand this because there's so much money tied up There's so many people in positions of power who have seemingly never met a kid. There's so many PhDs who don't actually work with kids. They work with data. that They don't actually know what it's like to teach a student and they don't know what it's like to know that student and to educate that student and not the classroom or the school or the grade level or the state. And my question becomes, why do, you, why do they want to institutionalize them for longer? Why is it that California has been working for so long to mandate four-year-olds go to school? Well, they're like, but we need them because if we don't get them early, then they, they don't get the education they deserve. But they're not getting the education they deserve in the grades that you do have them. And you want me to give, give them to you younger? So you have more time to do What? What I see coming out is not educated student, but indoctrinated students. They believe what they're told to believe because that's the only thing they know because they spend more time with you and institution than they do with their parents, their identity. Identity becomes really important in education. You need to know where you came from because that that provides the, the sense of self in a lot of ways. It's not the entirety, but it provides a lot of the sense of self that we need to have a coherent society and even coherent individuals. And yet we've stripped that from them. They double down on the equity issue later on. They say students of color and low-income students are already are disproportionately underserved by counseling. Again, we're talking about equity instead of equality. We're not providing everyone an equal opportunity. We're providing everyone an equitable opportunity, which means that if your kid could go farther, but going farther would mean leaving someone farther behind. We're going to make sure your kid can't go farther because that kid has to have an equitable solution. So we're not going to give everyone the same thing. We're going to give everyone what they need to get to the right, to the same spot, which by definition means taking things away from people. If your kid's good at math, but not at reading, we're going to take away his ability to move fast in math because he needs more time in reading. That's my kid. 
I tried doing ABCs with him the other day and his ability to link letters and sounds is not there yet. And he's six. But math, he can do multi-digit multiplication. Or not multiplication, addition and subtraction. He's learning multiplication right now, which is great for a six-year-old. So finally, at the end of this, it says, Finally, since states are losing standardized testing this spring, they'll need to administer tests at the start of the next school year to see what students know after the crisis. Basically, we can't know how students are doing unless we have numbers to assign to them. I'd love to get up and tell people that students are not numbers. No amount of data will ever tell me what I need to know about a kid. Because data does not tell me who they are. Data does not tell me what they love, what their passion is. Data does not tell me what motivates them, what encourages them, how much repetition they need, where they struggle, where they succeed. It doesn't tell me any of that. And so it can't tell me how to teach the kid. Because data does not equal a person. No matter how much data they can gather, it will never equal the person. And this is really the crux of this whole issue with homeschooling and schooling in general. Education must be personalized for it to be effective. That can be done by a teacher in a classroom. It can be done by a parent. It can be done by a coach. It can be done by a grandparent. It can be done by a family friend, but it must be done. Now, the student has some responsibility in this too. They have to be willing to learn. But honestly, as the adult... I'm the one who has more resources, intellectually, emotionally, uh, understanding, all those kind of things, to help them in that field, to, to, to open themselves up to education. And it's a struggle. I don't do it perfectly with my own kids, by far from it, actually. But that's the reality, is data does not equal students. And so they can gather all the data they want come fall and will not improve their scores in the long run because they're not interested seemingly, in creating functioning, educated human beings. They're interested in creating people who, quote-unquote, know what they were taught in a given time frame. And they've been indoctrinated into the right way of thinking about things, which I don't trust them to do. And again, it's not the individuals in most cases. I know many teachers who teach in classrooms that are wonderful people and honestly care about their students. But oftentimes, those are the people who are the least likely to move into admin. Because they're not, they're not ambitious. Their ambition is directed towards helping kids learn. right? And you know those teachers. You know them from your own experience. Those teachers who care way more about you than about the, about the subject matter. And if you don't, I'm sorry. I wish you did. But I know they exist. And this is why teachers, especially those teachers, those teachers who really care about students, eventually end up getting burned out. Because they end up investing so much only to have admin pound them over and over and over again with policies that are not student-friendly, that are not education-friendly, but the data supports. I don't care what the data supports. Really, I care about the kid. And nothing will beat relationship. So as a homeschool parent, if you're one of those already, you know this. 
walk in this. Know that you're doing what's right. If you're new to homeschooling, know that you're embarking on a, on a journey that is going to have its ups and its downs, but it's going to be wonderful. And your kid will learn. Just keep at it. Keep pushing. Keep learning yourself. Um, and ignore people like this who clearly don't understand what homeschool is because they think it's the same as online learning and are more interested in equity rather than equality, equal access to things, right? Being able to, to move forward and being able to, to move at your own pace. And they clearly think that the solution is crunching the numbers and people are not numbers. They're just not. The relationship is always more important. This is why we need history, because it gives us context, right? And that, it's my pet peeve. I'm a history teacher, so take that with a grain of salt. But math is important. Science is important. English is important. History is important, right? I, I think I've, I did an entire podcast on this in the past. Um, I was a history and political science major in my undergrad, and we had a t-shirt that said, um, everything is a subfield of history, because it is. And then a, a quote, I think it's from Machiavelli, that says uh, politics is the master science because it determines what is taught. So keep that in mind. Politics determines what is taught. Hence why it's the master. So be aware of that. School is not neutral. It has a policy that it wants to push and it, it makes sure that it weeds out as much as it can those people who do not fit into that mindset through credentialing processes and things like that. So um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I know that was a little bit lengthy. Uh, I was going over an article and this article, I mean, I just rends my soul. I get so worked up and angry about this kind of stuff because I'm like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point entirely. And you're missing the kids. Kids are being failed, not academically, but failed as human beings by a system that thinks of their data or thinks that everyone needs to be at the same level or um, just is overwhelmed by the fact that that there's individuals there that have to be attended to. So if you like this episode, please share it with someone. Um, like, subscribe, hit the buttons, do the things, uh, leave a review, and check out our website, uh, youjustgothomeschooled.com, and follow us on Instagram. Thanks and have a great day. Bye.